Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so grateful to uh, have the opportunity to freely speak. I, I say that frequently, but when we look around at all that goes on in this world, even in uh, neighboring countries, um, Canada is cracking down on uh, freedom in church to speak and preach truth, and um, certainly Scotland, our homeland, part of our homeland, um, almost cannot preach the gospel there, and we still have access to openly gather and to declare the truth that we believe, and uh, I don't take it for granted. I hope you don't take it for granted. We always want to celebrate the opportunities that we have to, to come and gather in His name. Amen? Amen? I want to start something tonight that I'm going to continue over the next couple of weeks. Um, <clears throat> something that I've, I've, the Lord's just been stirring my heart about, and I've been reading. Um, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. I just want to catch a verse here because I, I think it's, um, it's timely and something that all this foundation for all these years that pastor has set in my life and in our church, and I so appreciate it. Um, I, I often think, man, you know, when I say this, this is already probably, you know, I certainly been spoken at some time in some way um, because it has. Um, for over the last several years. Um, but I, I want to, I, I challenge us, I, I try to do this um, <clears throat> to, to use our intellect that God has given us. The scripture says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, everybody say mind, mind and strength. <clears throat> I don't think we leave the intellect out of serving the Lord. Everybody say amen. So tonight we're going to go to school a little bit. I want to break down something that we have done this many times through the years, but I just have seen some things recently, um, and I want to talk to you about baptism tonight. I'm going to drive to a point over the next few weeks that, as we frequently do, learning from uh, my teacher, <laughs> um, we have to deconstruct some things in order to construct some things. Uh, I think sometimes it's easier to come to faith when we know nothing than when we come with all of this junk that we had to pick up through the Baptist church or through the, you know, Episcopal church or wherever it was that you, you know, grew up under. And then you got to get rid of all this stuff and then kind of start over. And so um, we have to deconstruct a little bit before we can construct. So tonight will be mainly that. Um, I challenge you to think. I challenge you to open your heart and receive from the word of the Lord. Amen. So I just want to read these three verses in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on unto perfection. Everybody say perfection. Or completion, wholeness. Not laying again, listen to what he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, when you look at that list that he said we should not be focusing on, you're going to find that literally pretty much every denomination stays right in that box. Every denomination focuses on how they feel, 
about laying the foundation of dead works and repentance, of faith toward God, of doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. That's, when you go and look at the website of the statement of faith, that's where you're going to stop. So uh, we're going to talk about baptism tonight, but it's not the end all. We're trying to get beyond this and get to the, to the focus of what really we need to see in our lives. These are the beginning points, but not the points that we should be focused on. Everybody following me? According to the writer of Hebrews, not my words, but his. So I want to look at some things here tonight. And um, I just pray that the Lord will give you ears to hear and, and provoke thought in your life. I pray that when you hear this, that you will go home and have a desire to seek in the scriptures and to find what the Lord says. Because that's the greatest thing that will happen. I've often said about our children when we first started homeschooling. I felt like Carrie said, I don't know if I'm able. And we walked through the halls. I told her, go walk through the halls and look at the names over the doors, most of which we knew because we grew up in Cottonwood. And I said, you tell me you're not more able than those knuckleheads are to teach our children. But I've often said about homeschooling, the most important thing is teaching your kids how to learn. It's not really what... Anybody remember what you learned in eighth grade? Nobody here. And the older we get, the less we remember. I can hardly remember what I learned last week. Um, so it's not so important that you hear my words tonight as much as you develop a hunger to hear the words of the Lord, if you follow what I'm saying. I'm trying to provoke thought in you, so I'm, I'm going to try to do that tonight. Water baptism is uh, something that most churches, even in their statements of faith, would have some opinion on. Now, as we all know, everybody here, except for the Davises, which are new since we've come here, have grown up, and Dara's new, that's true, Dara hasn't grown up in the, in the church, all this. We, we know that we baptize, we baptize in Jesus' name, we've done that for years. We've never made that a focal point of, of what we believe is part of salvation, um, but we do, when we baptize, we baptize in Jesus' name. So this is not something to, to try to conflict that or uh, anything along those lines. But I, I, again, I want to get to the heart of what I believe the Lord really does want us to focus on. Uh, so there's a variety of denominations that believe that water baptism is essential for salvation, part of the salvation work. You could name many of them. Um, I know several Baptists, which would make sense, Baptist uh, sects of denominations would believe this. Missionary Baptists are one. If you're not baptized in the Missionary Baptist Church, then you're not saved. Um, the Apostolic Movement, there are seven major denominations in the Apostolic Movement. Um, all of them believe that water baptism is mandatory and essential for your salvation. There are other um, Trinitarian uh, denominations that also believe that. For the sake of time, we won't list those, but there are so many verses that would refute this concept that, that water has anything to do with your salvation. And I just want to hit a couple, and I'm not going to go through a bunch of them, but for the sake of time, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8 and 9. Everybody probably can quote this verse. We've quoted it so many times. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, verse 9, not of works lest any man should boast. Anybody see anything in there about water? 
and even a hint. So Paul's perspective, and I'm going to try to give you some perspective of Paul, perspective of John, perspective of Peter, perspective of Jesus, and I want you to look at it from different angles. I don't want you just to hang on, well, we don't, we don't believe water baptism is essential for salvation, so I'm just, I don't have to listen. I'm going to check out. No, I don't want you to do that. I want you to get a well-rounded perspective of what baptism is supposed to be about. For by grace, you are saved. It's not of yourselves. It's not something that you can do or earn and it's not of works. And I think this is an important little part of this verse in verse 9. Not of works lest any man should boast. And I think we could say, well, that, yeah, because we don't want us to boast. But the problem with water baptism is you can't baptize yourself, which we will cover over the next few weeks. And so it requires a pastor to baptize you. And so then the, it's not just your boasting there's a problem, but now we have the boasting of people who are baptizing that becomes a problem. This has nothing, salvation has nothing to do with us. Salvation has everything to do with Jesus Christ. We didn't, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We had no right to approach God. We had no access to say, God, I, I, I want to be saved. But his grace calls us and his grace saves us. And I think that's important. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Um, I might just, I don't have them all marked. I had so many scriptures. And so I might just look on the wall here. But let's see if I can get there really quick. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Anybody see anything about water there? Well, the word washing, pastor. Oh, well, okay, we got to talk about washing, and which we are going to do tonight. But just because we have the word washing, we have the washing of the word. We just read this, Dustin, where was that at? You were reading uh, Peter? Where were you at the other night? I, I, Ephesians, Ephesians. It says, and the washing of the word. The word of God washes our life. So again, not of works of righteousness. This isn't about us. It's not something we do. We can't participate in the redemptive process of our lives except for to place our faith. Then we have effects of salvation post-salvation. Everybody following me? Yes, there are works of our lives, fruits of repentance. Those things all come. Uh, absolutely, we believe in the works of righteousness, but that is post-salvation, not pre-salvation. It's the effects of salvation in our life. Um, so these groups that believe that baptism is required for salvation, for the remission of sins, uh, the scripture, which I don't know if we're going to cover it tonight. I forget what I've written down because I'm ahead in my studies. Um, John chapter 3 and verse 5, the scripture says that, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It makes no mention of water whatsoever. Doesn't say without the baptizing in water, there is no remission of sins. Uh, John chapter three. I know that's that's not where we're at. I know that's not the right scripture. I'm just making while you're turning there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's not about water. Now look, here's where some people like to go. They like to start in John chapter three and verse five and say this is evidence. Put it back up there. John chapter three and verse five. This is evidence that. Um, you must be water baptized to be saved. So Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now I want you just to 
Follow along with me and read verse 6. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, I don't think that we ever should pull verses out of context. We should always understand the context with which these things are spoken. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he doesn't ask, I don't know if you've noticed this, the rich young ruler, which some have supposed to be Nicodemus, but he does not in this, in this uh, instance ask, what must I do to be saved? He comes to Jesus and says, hey, you're a great leader. You're a teacher. We, are, we just love you. You're awesome. And Jesus looks at him and he says, except you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Remember how I said Jesus likes to trigger people? I just said that a few weeks ago. I believe that. I believe that Jesus looks right beyond all the issues and he wants to trigger people. He wants to get right to the heart of the matter. So he understands Nicodemus is going to have a problem with this. And so he speaks directly to it. And he says, unless you're born again, you cannot Born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus's response is, what, must I then again enter my mother's womb to be saved? To be born again? Jesus' answer says, no, you must be born of water and you must be born of spirit. For that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 6, Jesus' inference is that the birth in water is fleshly. That's what he's saying. Now, the little children wouldn't understand this. It'll go right over their heads, and that's perfect. But every single one of you came into this world in water. When a woman's ready to birth, what do they say? Her Water has broken. You are born of water. You are nine and ten months, whatever it is, nine months in that womb in water. It's a miraculous thing. I don't, we can't live in water outside the womb, but for some reason, God made it where we live in water inside the womb. So what Jesus' statement certainly is making no inference toward baptism. But what he is saying is, listen, Nicodemus, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. One, the kingdom of God is reserved for humans. That's this realm that he's talking about. And unless you are born humanity, you are disqualified. So aliens, should there be any? <laughs> They're not in. Unless you're born of the water. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say... That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So what's the water referring to? Our fleshly birth. But just being human doesn't get you into the kingdom. So uh, this, this modern era where Clarence, or not Clarence, but um, uh, Carlton Pearson, universalism, he ushered this thing in where all humanity will be saved. Well, that's good except for the rest of what Jesus said. But unless you were born of the spirit, you have no access. You're not a part of the kingdom. Jesus, Jesus only references here two births. Everybody follow that? I think that's important. He doesn't reference three births. He doesn't say, listen, when he says you must be born again, Nicodemus immediately knows where he's going. He hears the birth and he says, that's about, that's about birthing. So I got to go back in my mother's womb. Jesus says, no, you need to be born of the spirit. So he only references two births. He doesn't bring a third one in. He doesn't say, yeah, you, you were born of your mother, and now you've got to be born of water, baptism, and then you've got to be born of spirit. Something completely doesn't do that. Amen? 
not in the text. That would be interjected and not there. One natural birth, one spiritual birth. Jesus was not making some veiled reference to baptism here. In fact, he never spoke of it in any other place as part of salvation. Go ye therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know this is a spurious uh, scripture anyway, but even there, he makes no connection between baptism and salvation. We baptize. We baptize in Jesus' name. But we don't make a connection between baptism and salvation. Nowhere does Jesus say, part of what you need to focus on is you need to go out and baptize. Jesus baptized The Savior of the world, baptized, zero. He did not commission his disciples to baptize. So the emphasis here was really, really important. And then I want to bring a side note in. Water baptism, and I want you to think about this. I'm I'm going to bring things to you. You might have to write down or you could go back and listen. And think about it over the next few weeks. Water baptism is never referenced as giving life or new birth in any way in the scripture. Now, because of how we've thought, we've thought that water baptism was about bringing life, bringing new birth. But Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 put that up on the wall. Paul is going to clarify what baptism is about. Okay, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. For as many of you as were, you can pull it up for me. We're taking a minute tonight. As many of you as were baptized, were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his what? Everybody say death. Water wasn't about bringing life. Baptism wasn't about bringing life. Baptism was a representation of death. So being born again would have nothing to do with water. You following what I'm saying? Water is not, water baptism is not looked at as a type of life-giving process. Water baptism is looked at as our, from the perspective that we do it, it's looked at as our joining with Christ in his death. The resurrection is something different. It's not water baptism. So the idea of being born of water, we're, we're born of water one time out of the womb. We're never born of water spiritually. Any spiritual connotation of baptism is concerning our death of our flesh. If Jesus is referencing water baptism in John 3, then Paul is preaching a false gospel in Romans 6. Because Paul is making the opposite point of what Jesus would be making if he was referencing water baptism. Let's move on. That, we've, we've covered that sufficiently, I think, for tonight. Acts chapter 2. Every apostolic church knows this scripture. And if you've been around that movement at all, then you would know it too. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall be, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Context. I just said that. I'm going to say it again. Context. Who is Peter speaking to? Pastor jumped right on it today. He looked at the Jews. This is an assembly of Jews who have gathered in Jerusalem. We are 50 days from the crucifixion. And the, the, the early disciples, they've been filled with God's spirit. They're proclaiming the gospel in every language. They're not speaking in unknown tongues. They are speaking the gospel in the languages that are present in Jerusalem for Pentecost, for the festival, for the feast. And they are proclaiming. And Peter, though, looks at the Jews and he says to them, you crucified the Lord of glory. Now, they are pierced to their hearts. And then look at verse 36, I believe it is. Uh, 30, sorry, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, this may seem like a sticking point, but I'm just sharing you things that God's been putting in my heart as I've been rereading with an open heart about this. Does anybody notice here that they do not ask, what must we do to be saved? Anybody else notice that? That's actually not the question they're asking. They're not even thinking about salvation. Remember I told you that the thrust of the gospel in the book of Acts, see all this stacks up for me. What are the apostles preaching? They're not preaching sin sacrifice of Jesus and you all need to get saved. What they're doing is they're carrying the message of who Jesus is, right? That's the thrust of the gospel through the book of Acts. So now as Peter has proclaimed, he is the Lord of glory and you killed him. They are pricked in their hearts and they go, whoa, what do we do now? That's exactly the connotation of what they're saying. Exactly the context. They're not looking to Peter. Peter, how must we inherit eternal life? What must we do to be saved? That's not the question here. The question is quite literally, what do we do now? We killed him. We can't bring him back. What do we do? Then Peter responds to this very direct question. And he says, the only way that you can right the wrong that you have done is you need to, number one, repent. What is repentance about? Changing your mind. Who do they need to change their mind about? The Lord of glory they just crucified. The one that they chose a murderer over him. They've got to change their mind about him. And then he says, you publicly, by inference, you publicly called for his head. You publicly shouted, crucify him. You publicly demanded he be murdered. Now publicly, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus and take him on as your rabbi. Does this apply to every single person that ever is to be born again? Peter actually doesn't even make inference towards salvation. Remember, they have not made inference towards salvation. They've not questioned about salvation. They're questioning how do we right the wrong. Peter doesn't say, hey, this is how you're going to get saved. Peter says, this is the only answer for your life. 
And then he says, save yourself from this evil and perverse generation. You say, well, man, Pastor Rodden, it just seems like you're kind of like splitting hairs. I don't know. I mean, it seems like if this was important. No, no, I think it's really important who people are speaking to. Do you think that, that Jesus would ask something of you that he might not ask of somebody else? See, we have this wrong concept, again, of salvation. We believe that Jesus speaks to everybody exactly the same way. The church is teaching today that Jesus loves everybody exactly the same way, and that, that is just absolutely not true. Jesus loves those that follow him more than he loves those that reject him. Jesus blesses those that follow him more than he blesses those that don't. So I'm going to, you're going to have to, if some of you won't want to raise your hand, I'm going to ask you, how many of you would say, Pastor Rodney, you're crazy, and I do not believe that Jesus would ask anything of one group that he wouldn't ask of another group? Anybody willing to raise your hand there? Okay. How many of you would say, you know what? I think there's possibility that Jesus might ask something of, of how somebody lived their life and that he might ask something specifically of them that he might not ask of somebody else. Anybody want to go with me there? Okay, because I got a great example. The rich young ruler. Do you all have to sell everything you have? How many of you here believe that the words given to the rich young ruler directly apply to your life? How many believe that? Anybody raise your hand as a liar? Because all of you have things. But Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and he demands something of the rich young ruler that he does not demand of everybody else. Why? Because of where the rich young ruler was, because of where his heart was. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to you that while I'm not opposed to being baptized and baptized in Jesus' name, we will do that again at some point. I want to propose to you something. Peter is directly addressing a group of Jews who participated in the murder of Jesus who have asked him, how do we right this wrong? And Peter looks directly at them and gives them an answer. This is how you right this wrong. Repent and you need to take his name publicly in front of all those people that stood with you, understanding that they might call for your head next. Understanding it's going to get you kicked out of the synagogue. Understanding it's going to come with some re recompense for how you've acted and the same judgment that you judge people with that you're going to be judged with. And so the demand that Peter is making is true. You can't negate Acts 2.38 and say, well, Peter, well, baptism wasn't important. It was. In fact, I believe baptism for those Jews was absolutely essential. But I do not believe that Jesus would stand today and look at you and say, you must repent and be baptized in Jesus' name to be saved. One, I don't think that's what Peter was saying to them. But two, I don't believe that's what Jesus would say to you. Say, so, well, everybody, my, my sins shouted crucify him. Well, everybody abandoned him, but the disciples didn't shout crucify him. There were a lot of people who were not a part of that. There were a lot, the, the Roman soldiers stood and watched, and I mean, they were doing their job, but they didn't shout crucify him. So again, wrong premise. What is being done here? For these Jews, Peter's answer is stinging. It is direct. It is intense. It's an offense. It's a sword drawn, intended to cut. Because of your sins toward Jesus, now the only way for your sins toward him to be remitted is for you to be baptized in his name. I could give you many different examples where I believe that different lifestyles would 
would be asked of the Lord for different responses. I can look at each one of you and I could say that probably in your lives that there are things that God has asked of you that he has not asked of everybody else. Because it is about, it is about independent and uh, personal commitment to the Lord. You must actively decide to take hold of the holiness of God is the second portion of what Peter says to them. The action that Peter demands is going to result in fruits of a repentant heart. Water has nothing to do with salvation any more than not eating pork has something to do with salvation. Water has nothing to do with salvation any more than not traveling on the Sabbath has something to do with salvation. And for some of you, you're 0 for 2. If you went down to Billy Sims Barbecue and you got the pulled pork, you traveled and you ate pork today. We cannot add things to this, but not add other things. We can't look at the Seventh-day Adventists and say, you're trying to bring in uh, Old Testament stuff and, and that's just absolutely not accurate. But by the way, you have to be baptized to be saved. It's the same stuff. This is not about that. It's about grace. I'm through page one. Everybody say amen. You may say, well, Pastor Rodney, this uh, proves water baptism is essential for salvation. Then what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would have something to speak about that. Paul is sickened by the division that has arisen in the church over what? Baptism. He's disgusted with it. Because people are going around and they're saying, well, I was baptized by Apollos and I was baptized by this one and I was baptized by that one. And Paul looks at them and he literally says, I am so thankful that I baptized none of you except for the house of Stephanus and maybe there's a few others that I don't really remember. That's how important it was to Paul. I don't even remember who I baptized. It wasn't even a, a crucial issue to him. He's just bringing people, hey, you want to get baptized? Amen, get baptized. That sounds good. Let's do it. But then he even takes it one step further. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God did not send me to do what? Really? The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament that you're reading didn't believe that water baptism was essential for your salvation? Yeah, exactly. The guy who is the greatest missionary the world's ever seen, establishing churches everywhere, did not have a calling on his life to baptize people. He just had a calling to preach the gospel. He said, I don't come to you with excellency of speech uh, or, or man's wisdom. I just come to you with the power of the Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel of who Jesus is. And by the way, if you receive it, you're going to have to go get somebody else from... Jerusalem to baptize you because I don't do that. That's nonsense. The emphasis to the Gentile church was clearly not about baptism. It certainly was not about water baptism. Paul doesn't emphasize it because again, he can see very clearly beginning the book to the Corinthians is there is a problem that has arisen as a result of water baptism. 
He's not seeing any blessing coming from it. He's seeing problems coming from it. Now, let me say there are some glaring problems with water baptism being essential for salvation. The first is the thief on the cross. Does does anybody believe that they pulled the thief on the cross down, baptized him, and then put him back up on the cross? The second question would be even worse. Does anybody believe that Jesus is a liar? Now, I literally heard an apostolic guy get up and say, Jesus did not tell the man he was going to go to heaven. He said that you will be today with me in paradise, which isn't heaven, and ultimately was hell for that thief. So I I just really struggle with that image of the Lord. (laughs) I struggle with the image of our Lord on the cross and the thief looking at him, recognizing who he is, realizing the sin and the wickedness of his own life and saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus just absolutely giving him false hope. Just lies to him. Be comforted. I'm going to tell you something you want to hear, but when you die, guess what? You're really going to hell because you couldn't get baptized. And guess what? I don't baptize anyway. I mean, it's just, that's an awful, awful. I, I refuse to look at our Lord like that. I absolutely refuse to think that he would address a thief in his dying condition and give him a false hope. Why didn't he say, hey, repent, call on my name, ask the, I mean, I'm, I'm not being silly. Why didn't he sit, Jesus look at him and say, ask the Roman soldiers if they will throw a bucket of water on you so that you can be baptized, so that you can enter the kingdom with me. That's what our Lord would do if it was essential. He would not leave a dying man's last request of, oh God, I need to turn to you and leave him in a condition of sinfulness. Now I believe... I mean, the scripture makes clear that that the Lord went and he preached to those who were in paradise, Abraham's bosom, the captives who were there. I believe that he proclaimed who he was. He revealed who he was. And I believe that everybody there had to receive Jesus as almighty God. That's what I believe happened. And those who, all the Old Testament people, I believe they did. That's what they were looking for. And he says, I'm him. And they're like, Yes. This is the one, David and Moses and Noah and all these guys are are looking and they're seeing him. And I believe that the thief was there and I believe that the thief said, you are God Almighty and I understand that. And I believe that that thief is in heaven today. That certainly is what we have laid before us in the scripture. That's what it seems to be saying. You're going to have to really go down some rabbit holes to think otherwise. Amen. So that's a problem. But let's suppose that you navigate through that one. Let's get to the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And now, Jesus in Acts 1 tells the disciples, Go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. After the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you shall become witnesses of me unto Jerusalem, Judea, and uttermost parts of the world. So they go, and for seven days they are... They are Working, Dustin's been talking about this. I believe they're working through issues. I believe they're working through opinions. I believe they've got some differing things. And, and Peter's standing up and saying, no, brothers, that's not the right way. We know one of the things they were doing was electing Matthias. They had to get that out of the way because that wasn't of God. So they're weeding through all of their opinions. And now the Spirit of God comes in Acts 2. 
They are all filled with the Spirit of God. They pour out of the upper room and begin to proclaim the gospel. Now, this is, uh, much of this is from Pastor. I'm just repeating things that we've talked about. But let me, let me ask you, how many believe there was a baptismal tank in the upper room? But they're filled with the Spirit of God. And the order for which the, I know at least the apostolic church, I don't know exactly with the missionary Baptists, but the order with which they believe it happens is you're baptized and then the result of your baptizing, the sins being washed off of your life, then you receive the Holy Ghost and you speak in tongues. Can somebody show me in Acts 2 where anybody was baptized? In water? There's a problem. We go to the end of Acts 2 and Peter just demanded something of them that he didn't get done. Peter pours out of the upper room proclaiming a gospel and there's no reference toward any of the 120 being baptized in water. There's, there's reference, and that's what we're working toward over the next few weeks. I want to try to get to where I'll touch it a little bit tonight. There's reference toward spirit baptism, but there's no, there's no reference toward water baptism. So you, you develop a tremendous amount of difficulty Of course, the writer of Hebrews, this is what I was quoting earlier, 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Water cannot wash away your sins. Water can't be a part of washing away your sins. If water washed away your sins, then why can't you repent get in the shower and have somebody, have your wife or your husband speak Jesus' name over you and that count as baptism or in your bathtub. Why do you have to go to a church? Why do you have to get in a baptismal tank? Is it because that water is holy? Why does it, if water washes away sin, then why does it wash away sin all the time? And the argument is that, well, there is no... I, I literally heard a, a, another apostolic preacher several months ago said that, hey, listen, there was never a time where Jesus shed his blood that there wasn't water accompanying it. Like, whoa! Jesus shed his blood at the whipping post and there was no water accompanying it. He shed his blood when they pierced his head with the crown of thorns, when they ripped his beard off of his face... He shed blood and there was no evidence of water, but he goes to the, to the dying breath on the cross and they thrust the spear through his side and out flows blood and water. And so he says, see, the blood is applied by the water. I mean, this is just crazy when we start trying to grasp at straws and pull things together. So what I'm trying to make effort to do tonight is look at this from all of these angles so that we can have a well-rounded understanding of what the Lord really does want for our lives and how we are supposed to view baptism, how we're supposed to see it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 says, we have, been, uh, we have redemption through his blood. For the remission of sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that you were redeemed by his precious blood. And I just always have this question. And again, I'm not trying to be silly. 
But literally, why, don't, why doesn't the apostle say in, in, in these places, why doesn't Paul say in Ephesians or Peter say, listen, you're redeemed by his blood, which is applied to you in water baptism. Why is that never said if that's important? The scripture says that this, this birthing is so simple that even a fool can't err therein. So I just don't believe that God's leaving something for us that we absolutely do not know that is essential for us to even be born again. Yes, there are, there are revelations and glories that we are to dig out of the scripture, that we see the revelation. And our pastor does this so frequently, and I appreciate those, those nuggets that he digs around in there and pulls out. And we, you know, all of our ministers, we attempt to do that. But this salvation issue is so simple that even a fool can turn and say, Lord, I need to be, I need to be converted. My life needs to be redeemed. I need your blood to wash me clean. I see you as the Lord of glory. That's all you need to know. Everything else will take care of itself. The argument is made by many that the blood is applied in that water. And while this is not supported within Scripture, there are even greater issues that arise if you follow this theological rabbit hole. Does any other man play a role in your salvation? Again, as I'm just digging into what pastor set the nail for me and I'm going to drive it home. Does any man play a role in your salvation? Say, well, many of you would testify and say, well, you know, Pastor Rodney, you led me to the Lord. I pointed you in the right direction, but I didn't have anything to do with you turning your life to Christ. That was within your heart. You cannot baptize yourself. Jesus didn't even baptize himself. Certainly, if that was possible, he would have done it. So when we're talking about water baptism, you cannot baptize yourself. If you have to be water baptized to be saved, then we also would have to say that man plays a role in your salvation. So if you're baptized by Pastor Rod, there you go, Apollos. I was baptized by John. I was baptized by a No, no. And Paul's going, no, no, this is not it. This is the wrong direction. I want to be clear tonight. None of you here need me or pastor for salvation. Are we here to encourage and shepherd and develop growth in you? Absolutely. But if you are dependent upon me for salvation, you are in trouble. I don't have any to offer. Really, that idea that man plays a role in your salvation is a Catholic catastrophe. It is absolutely the same exact thing that the priest does. And the priest baptizes you, and the priest proclaims your sins washed away. It's the same idea. I got another question that really is weird to me. Does water wash away your sins permanently? If baptism washes away your sins, does it wash your sins away permanently? Now, I'm going to suggest, and some of you would not believe this, and I've been, I've been pointing these things out to dad. Within the apostolic movement, I have seen really big tell signs of belief in eternal security. 
Because if you believe that water washes away your sins and the blood is applied, you hear this terminology being sung about and being talked about, about this, about this eternal placement as a result of that. I know that many of the Baptist organizations that believe in water baptism essential for salvation absolutely do believe in eternal security. I remember our great theologian Lee from the park. <laughs> we asked him one time if he had, you know, where his heart was, and he said, drunk, hey, my granddad or my dad was a Methodist preacher and I got baptized and my ticket is punched. Does water permanently wash away our sins? If water baptism in Jesus' name washes away those sins, is it just the sins of the past or am I eternally secure by baptism? Well, obviously the scripture says that there is no eternal security of anything. It is in our faith and our steadfast following him. No man putting his hand to the plow and turning back is worthy of the kingdom. I mean, there's so many verses we could go through, the falling away and all of those things. But then I have this other question. If it only washes away the sins of my past, if water baptism is effective to wash away the sins of my past, it remits my sins, then what happens if I sin again? What happens if I leave, got baptized tonight in Jesus' name and I walk out tomorrow and I absolutely lie? Just lie. I don't want to go into adultery. That None of us would want to think of ourselves in that way. So let's just go with a no liar shall have his part in the kingdom of heaven. Liars are part. Of, okay, so we walk out of here tomorrow and you just lie. What now? And... What happens if you got hit by a car Tuesday before you got to the baptismal take at church on Thursday? If water washes away my sins, then do I have to be rebaptized every time I'm overtaken in a fault? Because John doesn't think so. John says, listen, hey, I write to you that you sin not. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. And by the way, you need to get rebaptized. Yeah, I know I added that in because it's not there. So the idea then would be that, the, that that repentant heart toward the Lord would not be enough and I would have to go back by my works and get to a point of salvation again. That is not a good place to be in. And listen, a hobby horse Pet peeve of mine because I grew up around it and saw so many people hurt by it. And many of you were a part of, of churches that were like this. But for those who think that righteousness is about what you wear or your lack of makeup or women not cutting their hair, I really do believe that they should consider getting a baptismal tank installed in their home and a full-time pastor because the sins of self-righteousness are going to be very great and you are going to need to use that tank frequently when we begin to think that what we're doing contributes to our salvation it's easy to carry that over 
Because something else you will, you will discover about most of those, I, I can't say all because I don't know all, but most of those organizations and denominations that believe in water baptism essential for salvation also believe that women shouldn't wear pants and that women shouldn't cut their hair and that women shouldn't wear makeup and that men have a pretty much a free thing. They can kind of look like girls. It's, it's okay. But everything else... We got this really stringent and strict thing. Why? Because you start out in works, where do you think you're going to go? Of course that's where you're going to go. If you believe your works have something to do with salvation, you're going to continue to believe that your works have something to do with salvation. It's a natural progression. So I want to take a quick look, and I am finishing up, and everybody can say amen. I want to take a quick look at and just touch on something that I have never seen before. And I'm going to make some proposition to you tonight and challenge you to look at it, and I don't believe to, to know all things, but um, I just saw a couple of things about baptism. Pastor's been talking, and I have been talking about this, and I, we believe this, that baptism in God's eyes signifies transition. Talk about a few things I do believe about baptism. Baptism signifies transition. So what we believe clearly is that it is an outward sign of what's already happened inward. That's what we believe. We believe that we get baptized, and we did this in August last year. I think it was in August, um, right? You know, before we were thinking about moving and all that, we, and, and your pool. We baptized, and Tony got baptized, and um, we, we baptize because we are just making that public confession about what's already happened in our lives. I believe it's transitional, I believe it is about us going from one place to another, from one life to another. It's a choice that we are making this public confession about the transition that's happened in our lives. Everybody would agree with that here tonight and say amen. amen. And we do baptize in Jesus' name when we baptize in water. And I want to say this clearly. We believe baptism is essential for salvation not water baptism, spirit baptism. The scripture says, unless you have his spirit, you're none of his. Somewhere along the line, we have allowed in America for people to participate in the kingdom of God without making any spiritual connection with God. We've allowed for people a gospel that allows for people to live lives that are completely distant from God altogether, but believe that they are right with God because they said a prayer and hypothetically maybe got baptized. So we do believe now, and, and as you know, we've all been here, but just to make it clear, I'm not talking about spirit baptism speaking in tongues because tongues is not the evidence of the spirit of God being in your life. Paul says very clearly, all do not speak in tongues. But what is evidence of the Spirit of God being in your life, of you being baptized in His Spirit, is that proclamation to those around you of who He is. When your heart begins to burn and yearn to share the glory of Jesus Christ with the people around you, that is an evidence that His Spirit is at work in your lives. Because no man says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. 
So you can fake tongues, but you're not going to fake the declaration of him being God Almighty. Everybody following me? As you think about this subject for the next few weeks, I want you to see that water and water baptism, as you're turning to 1 Peter, this is the last scripture, well, the last portion of scripture I want to look at, 1 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see that water is used to show God's judgment, not life. Not birthing, but judgment. Water baptism is symbolic of judgment and death, not life and strength. I want to look at this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 21. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing. Now that sounds like an oaky way of saying something, huh? The ark was a preparing. Wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the pro-baptism group is all excited when we read this verse, right? The end of verse 20. Here we go. And eight souls were saved by water. See, there it is. It's right there. Pastor, you didn't need to go anywhere else. We just need to read that one scripture and we've got it. Eight souls were saved by water. The first problem begins quickly. None of Noah's people, not one of the eight, even got wet. Does anybody know off the top of their head? Now, there's some interesting numbers that go on here. Anybody know off the top of your head how many days before the waters? Remember, it had not rained. Everybody remember that? No rain. Nobody knows what rain is. Anybody know how many days it was before uh, when Noah went to the ark with his family before it rained? Anybody know off the top of your head? Seven. That gives anybody who thought there was any chance that they walked in there with wet feet. It, it ends that discussion. They didn't even get wet by water. So we have to kind of try to understand this. I, and I'm going to mention this a few times over the next few weeks. But I, something I've been thinking about lately, because there's some other passages that talk about baptism and the Old Testament. Many times the people who the, old, the New Testament refers to in the Old Testament that were baptized, the majority of them did not live for the Lord and died in sin. Oh, that's another problem. Because if baptism is that security and that washing away and, and remitting of sin, then I could get into the baptismal tank in Jesus' name and really get out of there and be clean without ever changing my life. That's what it's about. Um, okay. So the Greek makes it clear that they were not saved by water. Uh, let's, let's just make that very clear. But they were rescued from the water. 
This is the exact same word that is used of Paul when Paul in the book of Acts is shipwrecked and he was pulled from the water. This is the same thing. Paul wasn't baptized. Right? Everybody follow me? There's no... Hey, Paul was baptized in the shipwreck. No, Paul was in a shipwreck and he was in the water trying not to drown. And he was saved from the water. Not saved by the water. (laughs) He was saved by the barbarians who got a fire going to warm him up. He wasn't saved by the water. So I want to look at this passage. And just look real quick in Genesis chapter 6. I want to read a couple of things that... um, I just want to highlight because I've been thinking a lot about them. I don't know if I have them all perfectly worked out in my head, but I want to share with you what I'm thinking. The earth was corrupt before God in verse 11, and the earth was filled with violence, verse 12. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Verse 17, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. Verse 18, but with thee I will establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and and thy sons' wives with thee. Peter says that the baptism that saves is not one of the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Because Peter is directly drawing the contradiction between water baptism and spirit baptism. Water does what? It takes away the filth of your flesh. And he says, this is not the baptism that we need to be worried about. Remember? None of Noah's people got wet. So the baptism, it says that they were saved by baptism. No, no, no. They were not baptized in water. They were baptized in an ark. To be baptized means to be immersed. It means to be surrounded and covered completely. That ark was completely covered. Get out of your mind all of the ideas that you see with Noah had a nice, beautiful like uh, yacht deck that they wandered around on. No, this thing was completely shielded in to the point that Noah had to send out birds to figure out if there was any land he couldn't see. They were not saved By water, they were saved from water. They were not baptized in water, they were baptized in an ark. What we see here, and I wanted to point out, is Genesis 6. What you see is the judgment of God. And how is God pouring out his judgment upon man? Where is he pouring it out at? Water. Everybody say water. The water in Noah's day completely and totally relates and makes the assertion of God's judgment. And Peter is drawing that Noah was saved from the water. He was saved from the judgment of God by what? Everybody say it. The ark. That's how Noah was saved. John the Baptist said, 
I do not baptize, or I baptize you with water, but Jesus, when he comes, he is not going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with holy, everybody say it, spirit. So we're, what, what is the baptism that is essential for our lives here? That's what I'm driving at. It's not water baptism. It's spirit baptism. It's that immersing in God's spirit because those who walk in the spirit, they don't fulfill all of the lusts that get the judgment of God poured out on them. Because they're saved from the judgment of God, from the water, by the Spirit. There is never a record of Jesus baptizing any one of his disciples. And his baptism is not about the putting, uh, putting you in the water of judgment. But his baptism is about putting his Spirit on you and in you that keeps you out of that water. I want you to look at chapter 7 in Genesis really quickly. I'm almost done. I haven't looked at a clock because I have to finish and so I don't care. Verse 17. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, chapter 7, and the waters increased. And listen, I want you to just, just think about a few things. I don't even have time to cover them. Just think about a few things. And the water bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And I begin to think about Jesus saying, if I be Lift it up. And verse 18, And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of... ark went upon the face of the water. Let me see. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. It's the only other time this phrase is used in Scripture. Two times this phrase is used. Moved upon the face of the water. Once in the Spirit in creation and once in in Genesis chapter 7, speaking of the ark, which I believe is a type of the, of the Spirit of God baptism of our lives. Two times it's used, and I believe they're referring to that same spiritual baptism and protection. The ark is a type of the housing of the Spirit of God. Why is Noah in the ark? Because of his obedience to the voice of God. Why is Noah's family in the ark? Because of his obedience to the voice of God. Noah, if he wanted to get baptized, would have been with the rest of the sinful, wicked world ignoring God. But Noah is saved by the Spirit of God. That ark is encapsulating him and protecting him and bringing him into the purpose and the promise of God for his life. I believe 
That the imagery that Peter is using here is not one that shows about water baptism, but one that shows about spirit baptism. Not of a water baptism that covers the outward man, but a spirit baptism that cleanses the inner conscience and the mind. Again, going back to that verse, which when Dustin said that the other night, I had to put my marker in the Bible and I pulled it back out. But I believe it was in Ephesians. It says, by the washing and the regeneration of the word of God, the rhema of God, that cleansing. This is what Peter is talking about. That that spirit of God rests upon you in such a way that it cleanses you from the wickedness of your life. It resides on you and you reside in it. And then when we take the it's out and we put Christ in, it is his spirit that lives in me. I in Christ and Christ in me. There is one other image that I want you to look at in in chapter 8 and verse 8. Think about this. Also, he sent forth a dove from him. Oh, you can look at verse 7, and he sent forth a raven. I don't know. Who went to and fro on the earth. That's described as Satan. The raven's a dirty bird, I think. Verse 8, and he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark. And for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And then he put forth his hand and he took her and he pulled her into him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out of the ark. Verse 11, and the dove came to him in the evening and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So no one knew that the waters were abated from off of the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days. And sent forth a dove, which returned not again to him anymore. Before I dive into that for a second, I want to point out that Noah waited until the ground was dry before he opened the door. Again, I think it's so clear from the scripture that God was saying, listen, this salvation that happened to Noah had nothing to do the water except that God saved him from it not by it that imagery of that dove I could not get out of my mind and I know that you probably could draw this relationship but I want to read it for you in Matthew chapter 3 I think I put down the wrong maybe it was Luke 3 but anyway it says that Jesus uh, no that's right Jesus answered and said unto him suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness then he suffered him and Jesus when he was baptized I want you to listen what happens here most of you probably never caught this because it just stood out to me recently when he was baptized, went straight way out of the water. And then the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending 
like a dove and lighting upon him. I was thinking about that as Noah released that dove from the ark the third time and it flew away. I believe he had a window. Obviously, he could take hold of that. So he probably is looking out of that window and that dove is disappearing in the distance. He no longer is able to see it. And I just was thinking about that spirit leaving the ark. And there is typology clearly between that imagery. I've always asked myself, why a dove? Why? Anybody else ever ask yourself, why did he see the spirit like a dove descending? Is it just me? I, like, why, why not like a feather or like a, a, I don't know. He could have saw a lot of different things, like a, a rain or a, a mist. But as Jesus stood in the Jordan 3,000 years later with John, John doesn't understand what this is all about. He shouldn't be baptizing Jesus, but Jesus says, suffer it. And as Jesus comes out of the water, I believe his baptism in the water is, is again, it's a, it's a picture. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. If, sin wash, if water washes away your sin, then why was Jesus baptized? He was sinless and spotless, unless you believe that baptism made him sinless. But I believe that he's, he's going down in the waters of judgment. We know this. The scripture says that he took upon him, he bore our sins. Baptism is, a, is an imagery of judgment, of, of where, what sin produces and God judges by water. And, but God doesn't show John the Spirit descending upon Jesus while he's in the water. I know you've all seen the picture. I've seen the picture. Jesus is standing in the water. And the, the, anybody seen that picture? And the doves come. No, no, no. That's not what happened. Jesus got out of the water. And once he got out of the water, John sees the heavens open. And that dove descending. And I begin to think about that, how Noah releases the dove, but she could not find anywhere for her foot to rest. And the scripture says that the spirit of God lighted upon him. What we see, Jesus was already full of the spirit of God. It is his spirit that fills us. But we see imagery for John. John, I believe, went straight back. He would have known the story of Noah. He would have known that, that Noah released that dove. And to him, this is the sign of the resting presence of God. What Noah saw, what John saw, what Paul saw, what Peter saw, it was not about water baptism. What John saw in that, as he stood in the Jordan and Jesus stood on the bank, what John saw was the Spirit of God coming down and resting upon that Ark of the Covenant. That Spirit of God that is symbolized in Noah leaving and flying away from the Ark is now residing upon and within the Ark again. And they did not see water baptism. What they saw was the 
the purpose of the Spirit of God working within humanity. You're going to see a lot of people, as we study for the next few weeks, who were baptized by terminology that died in their sins. Because it was all about baptism in the Spirit of Christ. I want to close by saying this. Please make effort on your own to seek the Spirit of God resting upon your life. We need not be afraid of what that produces. We are not afraid of whatever God wants to do in our lives. Amen? We've never focused on the fantastic and we will not start focusing on it now. But we are not afraid of the giftings. We are not afraid of how God moves and how God wants to work. But what I am terrified about is that we would have a bunch of people who claim to know God but do not reside within the spirit, within the ark of his covenant. We're out here in the Jordan thinking that we're all good because we're in the water. And God's trying to get us out of the water and into his spirit. Pastor, would you come tonight?